Hey y'all, welcome back to Down to Brown. If you remember back in February, we released an episode about egg freezing called Just Two BFFs Talking Fertility. And that's exactly what that episode was about. I had just gone through egg freezing in January myself, and my best friend Priya talked to me about that. But she also shared her own decision to not do it and have kids sooner. We talked about the concept of choice and how really there is no right or wrong. It's just a woman deciding what's best for herself or themselves. But we also made sure that we clarified a million times, like we were not doctors. We are not, nothing has changed since February. We have not gotten any medical degrees. And so it was always important to us and part of the plan for me to also talk to a expert. And so I talked to Dr. Gaia Muruguppan, who honestly just replied to a cold outreach email. And I cannot thank her enough because she enlightened me so much. But it's also really inspiring to know that there are South Asian women doctors out there who are so passionate about helping our community and further raising awareness and educating us about the topics that we have so long not talked about. When we met, She pleasantly surprised me by asking me if we could add a topic to our conversation about fertility, vaginismus. Let me be clear, there is nothing pleasant about vaginismus, but what did pleasantly surprise me was the fact that she was so excited to shed light on something that is clearly underrepresented in our conversations, especially amongst our communities. But I won't lie, I think this extends beyond our community. I think universally we have this discomfort. In fact, she taught me in our conversation that two of three South Asian women have vaginismus. What the fuck, guys? That is a lot. Interestingly, when I first thought about how I use the word vagina in my own upbringing and words like vaginismus, it was very sporadic. Um, My parents, I think I mentioned, and some people know this, but they moved back to India in Hyderabad when I was 17 and I had just started college and I went every summer to visit them. So one summer I went there, one of our aunts lived in the building that they lived in as well. And so I went to stop by, visit, make some small chat. And a week later, I found out some gossip that she had spoken to another aunt of ours saying that I came in wearing a shirt with the word vagina on. And the way she said it was along the lines of my kids saw it, the word vagina, like who is this girl? Like, I don't know about her influence. What kind of shirt is that? So I hadn't even realized that that's the shirt that I had been wearing with that term because it was my vagina monologues cast member shirt from when I participated in college. And I just put it on every week because it's one of the shirts I brought and I needed to wear clothes that I liked. And it's funny to me because that word itself, there's so much taboo around it. We can't even utter it as women. So go figure that there's so much shame and secrecy around talking about our vaginas, even outside of the South Asian community. So how are we supposed to ever feel less alone, be open about the things that plague us, or even the joys that we celebrate about sex if we can't even say the word vagina. So I just wanna clear that out before we talk about vaginismus because this term is gonna come up a lot and I really truly hope it doesn't make folks uncomfortable because vagina, vagina, vagina. Today, Dr. Murugapan and I talk about a shit ton regarding fertility and justice, vaginismus. 
But we also talk about how in our culture, sometimes we mistake and mix up the concept of sex and reproduction, that we don't really talk about a woman's pleasure. There's a lot of shame and blame associated, and it can indirectly impact men too. And hopefully people care just because they want to be an ally to women or as a woman, they want to help other women who might have this and spread more awareness about this. We lightly also touch on the concept of trauma. So a trigger warning on that. And remember, please follow us at Down to Brown. Let's go ahead and meet Dr. Murguppen. All right, Dr. Gaia Murugupan, thank you so much for joining us. Hi, thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited. I really didn't expect with like my cold outreach that you would be open to connecting and then recording. Oh gosh, of course. This um, topic of fertility and especially how it affects Southeast Asian women is extremely near and dear to my heart. So I'm very excited to talk to you about it, Lahari. I so appreciate that. Why did it become so near and dear to your heart? I mean, in medicine, I don't know so much about it as much as you would, but I understand you have certain directions you can take with it. So how did this speak to you? Um, Yes, I agree that there are so many different ways to go in medicine. I think from a very early, very early on, I was really interested in women's health and particularly the ability to choose a profession where you get to interact with women at multiple stages in their life. I thought that was really special, Mm -hmm. and I think the field of obstetrics and gynecology really does allow you to interface with women throughout all of these really important life events. Um, I think it's a very unique privilege, and also that we get to do medicine, like in a clinic, and that we also get to do surgery in the operating room was like a very unique combination of things for me. Yeah, absolutely. And I'm so grateful for that, too, because even just as I've been getting older, it's been so nice to see representation of people who look like me, who understand my background, um, not just in like the media, like a movie. I'd love to see more nutritionists or doctors and um, the help that you get outside of, you know, entertainment, for example, which is often usually talked about for representation. So it's also it was really exciting for me to see that there was such a leading uh, physician around this topic um, that. I feel like I just didn't really know about growing up and we don't really widely talk about, right? Like fertility, um, even just sexual behavior and intimacy. That's something that is so um, one of the many topics that we're trying to uncover more and more in our communities um, and be more open about. So I know we're here to talk about two different things today. So we're talking about fertility slash egg freezing as an option and then also vaginismus. So I wanted to kick off with egg freezing. Um, If you had to give a quick TED talk on what this is, I think people would appreciate because a lot of folks are like, how does it work? So how does, in your opinion, egg freezing work? Sure. So let me just start with a definition. I think it's just nice to all be on the same page and know what we're talking about. So egg freezing has been called so many things in the lay media, in social media, and the news. Um, It's also been called freezing for non-medical reasons, freezing for elective or social reasons. And I really like calling it planned egg freezing um, Mm. because I think it gives it, you know, it kind of gives it a different connotation and it it does not minimize what some people could think of as a trivial endeavor because I think this is anything but trivial and I think it's one of the most amazing and empowering things that I have the ability to offer my patients today. Yeah, no, I 
even just from my one humble experience personally, I realized like this is not something you do for fun. It's not something you do even as an option. It's a lot of commitment and work on your end. So I can see that <laughs> completely. Yes, I, I, I agree. I think using the word elective is a little bit trivializing it. Um, you know, I think it's also important to think about how egg freezing has changed over time. Mm -hmm. So just back in 2013, which is just eight years ago, um, when I was actually uh, still in training, egg freezing was considered experimental. Mm. And that restriction uh, was lifted, uh, in that label was lifted, and now it's considered common clinical practice. And since then, and even really before then, egg freezing has just become a very common practice in the fertility world. Um, as you know, family building and family structures change. Women increasingly are wanting to have babies later in life um, at a time that is very conducive to a perhaps your professional development that is not always conducive to your reproductive development. Mm-hmm. And that's so fascinating because that means like within the decade, there's been such a curve that egg freezing has gone through. So it does feel, though, like in the last few years that I've just started hearing about it more and more and partly probably due to that um, historical piece that you mentioned. Um, but also employers have been increasingly made, making it available. So do you have an idea of why this has suddenly become also such a benefit? This has take, been taken up so strongly now. Why? So I think, um, so the first thing you brought up is very important, and I, I do feel very privileged to provide fertility care in Silicon Valley. Mm -hmm. And I recognize that it's this really rarefied environment where a lot of our patients have really exceptional coverage. Um, as to why it's being offered, gosh, I wish I had insight into you know the minds of the CEOs of Google and Apple. I think that it's perceived as a perk, just mm -hmm. like a lot of the other perks that uh, tech employees are offered that gives each individual company a competitive edge to retain their employees. Um, they do also cover sperm freezing. Yeah. <laughs> I know. Why don't we talk about that more, too? <laughs> <I know. laughs> because it costs $50. <laughs> That's true. Yeah. <laughs> That's totally fair. Um, so as people are coming to you, especially, you know, as we talk about the South Asian community, what are some common misunderstandings that you find about the process amongst women in general and especially even Indian American women? Sure. Um, I can start by perhaps sharing a little bit, you know, from a personal standpoint. So it wasn't until actually very recently, and I think this is also the reason, Lahari, why I was so eager to respond to your message. <laughs> I didn't realize until very recently in my very adult life that a lot of the reason that I chose a feel, this field of obstetrics and gynecology is my entire adolescent and early adulthood um, really felt like topics about sex and reproduction and intimacy were just never discussed. Um, mm -hmm. I have so many memories of, you know, terrible, painful, long periods as a child that now I know can be so easily managed with birth control pills. 
but just that word birth control in my house was just so taboo. Mm. Um, and so many different, you know, adolescent life stages that I went through, like needing to wear a bra, needing to shave my legs. <laughs> <laughs> All of these things were sources of tremendous stress growing up. Mm-hmm. And I wanted to be able to remove some of that anxiety and stress and perhaps demystify a lot of things that I think are actually quite straightforward. Yeah. It's it's almost like if we just talked about it, we'd realize it wasn't even a big deal to begin with and like normalize it. But yeah. um, that resonates so much with me and I'm sure so many others of just being able to do that. And I'm just so glad to hear that you were able to take that and now serve so many of us who do need that help. Um, but I can especially one of the things I get kind of nerdy about is that our moms or, you know, previous generations, especially as Indian American women, um, we've seen our the age kind of benchmark of getting married, having kids is all kind of done by 30. Mm-hmm. And then now all of a sudden this generation, we kind of like added this like, ex, you know, accelerated like, OK, maybe 10, 15 years after your mom might. So there's this gap where I feel like, what do we do? Because no one is modeling to us how we figure this period out and still have the things or decide we don't want the things that we've seen before. I completely understand that. And in fact, I'm very happy to share that I've constantly compared myself to the age at which my mom had children, which was uh, 20. Whoa. (laughs) At which point I would have been (laughs) a sophomore in college (laughs) and probably wouldn't be talking to you today if that had been my life path. Um, Right. But, you know, it just you of course, I compared myself and I had I had so much anxieties about getting pregnant at the time that we decided to, despite everything that I I know as a fertility physician, so. Right. Are there any myths that you see yourselves, like especially your Indian American patients, that you see this type of conversation appear in what they're talking about or maybe what's hesitating them? I definitely see very strong societal and family pressures. Mm. And all of those pressures are exacerbated in the setting of infertility. I I perceive that a lot of um, Indian families, Indian, you know, once they once they get married, a lot of people do feel pressure to start building a family. And um, when you try and you don't succeed, then all of those pressures just become unbelievably multiplied. Mm-hmm. And I see that manifest in my clinic as anxiety, as relationship uh, difficulties that are very difficult to communicate about, honestly. Right. I mean, that like made me think of especially because, you know, this is something we joke about sometimes, but it can also have more serious implications like what you're talking about. But, you know, um, growing up, you're not allowed to talk about dating. And then all of a sudden you like hit in your 21, 22 and your parents are like, so like, where is your wedding? Um, And then like you get married and you're like, oh, like we've never talked about sex or like I'm in a relationship. I don't know how to do this. And so even thinking about how that might affect like as you're having kids, Mm -hmm. sometimes it feels like there's this like magical like. Like you're just supposed to know how to birth children and go through that process if you've never talked about it. Do you see this coming up in people um, who come to you? All the time. Um, and I see it even at a much more elementary level, perhaps, which is, you know, I think in our society, we 
intertwine, as do many societies, and, and very understandably, we intertwine sex and reproduction. Mm-hmm. And, you know, obviously sex leads to reproduction, but I am of the opinion that the two are actually completely different entities. Mm. And of course, it's easy for me to say because I spend, <laughs> I spend my entire career, you know, uh, uncoupling sex from reproduction. Um, but I think everybody who wants to enjoy sex is absolutely entitled to that, completely independent of their decision to or ability to procreate. Amen. I think the burden of what it means in our society, I think maybe they mix it. Um, Because what you described is exactly like, I remember when I had my first period, and um, I will say like, I love you, mom. I bring this example up because it's relevant, but um, shout out to my mom. But I remember I got my period and my mom sat me down and explained kind of like what it was. Um, And then she said I had to be really careful around boys now. But I didn't understand the connection at all because I'm like, I'm just trying to understand why I have this going on down there and then I also just don't know boys in general I was nine years old so I just didn't understand why (laughs) um so you know later in life you understand oh the connection but to your point they get kind of melded together and that actually further complicated my understanding of either if that makes sense it completely makes sense yes (laughs) yes So I'm sure we're not the only community that, you know, again, like, I don't think this is an exclusive topic to Indian American women where, you know, the feelings about egg fertility uh, or sorry, egg freezing and fertility. But do you see any ethnic differentiations in the utilization of this option? Yes. So um, this is a super interesting question and it actually mm-hmm. has been looked at um, with some really careful research so most you know most fertility clinics in the US they uh, re- at report their aggregate outcomes to this organization called SART or the mm-hmm. Society for Assisted Reproductive Technology and so that provides us a really nice source of data to look at trends in for example utilization of egg freezing Mm-hmm. And what's really interesting is, so if you look at this period from 2014 to 2016, so three years, there were 30,000 egg freezing cycles in the U.S. Mm-hmm. And two-thirds of those happened in white patients. Mm-hmm. About 10% happened in Asian patients, 7% in black patients, and 5% in Hispanic patients. And if you look at the in, at annual trends between 2014 and 2016, in 2014, there were just over 200 cycles done in Asian patients, which went up to 1,000 in 2016. So the Asian patients were the ethnic group that saw the most significant increase in mm. utilization of egg freezing during that time period. How interesting. Why do you think that is? I'm not sure, honestly. Um, I mean, I was I was very happy to see it. I. I would hypothesize that it has to do with access to care, mm-hmm. which um, is a surrogate measure, unfortunately, of uh, socioeconomic status. I'm really glad you brought that up because that's something that I've been talking about more and more as I've been open about. I, I just feel like there's nothing to be embarrassed about talking about neck freezing, so I'm pretty obnoxious about it. But then when people ask, like, why, I can't help but, like, I have to truly acknowledge, like, I was someone who it was a perk. It started as a perk. It ended as, like, I need this for my family planning. But um, at the same time, like, there is a privilege associated with having your employer or insurance cover it. 
And it could help so much of communities who do want to family plan more. Mm -hmm. So how do you see like any future of this becoming more accessible or other ways to democratize options like this if this is the thing that is best for that individual or family? Yes, I do. And I think the biggest um, light at the end of this tunnel is uh, state mandated insurance coverage for fertility Mm -hmm. benefits. Um, which is becoming more and more prevalent as time goes on. Um, And I do hope that uh, employers will increasingly offer this um, as part of medical insurance, just Mm -hmm. like any other um, coverage. And I think the more we talk about it and the more we talk about how important it is and how it benefits us, the more likely we we are to move this needle. Absolutely, because I feel like there's so much of an economic or socioeconomic future that it could change. Um, So and I also know those that argue like one of the things that my friend and I talked about um, in our previous conversation was how people also argue there are ethical kind of ramification, family ethics almost of like, do you, should you freeze your eggs? Could it potentially, you know, if women are having kids later in life, what type of implication does that have on society? Mm-hmm. Is this something you talk about with your, um, you know, even doctor community or your patients? We talk about ethics a lot. Um, mm-hmm. And I, we, there are a lot of ethical issues that arise um, when your job revolves around making babies. Mm-hmm. Um, Parental age does come up a lot. Discrepancy in parental ages among couples comes up a lot. Um, it's hard. So, you know, it's also it's also difficult because doctors are not God. Mm-hmm. And we um, really don't get to exercise kind of, you know, a, a discretion in a lot of these situations. And all of us believe very, very strongly in patient autonomy. So I think the best thing that we can do is to provide ample education about the process Mm -hmm. um, and allow a process of informed consent to take place. But you're right. And for example, probably the most stark comparison is with, you know, if you came to me and wanted to have a baby, right, I would approach, you know, I would, we would talk about your medical history. I would talk to you about what egg freezing entails or, you know, whether you're making eggs or embryos, same process, really. Mm but I wouldn't you know, ask you questions like, oh, well, where do you live? And what does your house look like? And do you have a room for the baby? And mm. do you have childcare? Do you smoke or drink? Or I don't know, a number of questions that perhaps I may not get into. Um, but for example, if you wanted to adopt a child, probably you're aware that there's a very rigorous evaluation process that accompanies that. And that process is in place, of course, to protect these children Um, But you can see how there's a very large gap, right, between the screening that you would undergo with me versus Mm -hmm. an adoption agency. Absolutely. That makes sense. And I feel like that's something that I've been observing again. um, I will say I will stay humble because you have really seen this at its full spectrum in your field. But um, I've noticed the variation between, you know, it it doesn't mean people who egg freeze, for example, not necessarily you don't have to be in a couple. You can be single, heterosexual, gay, LGBT. So it there's so many different variations of why someone would want to do this. can you tell us a little bit of the stories that you typically see um, from patients? I know like you can't tell us specifics, but aggregately, what are some of the stories that you see that um, make you very grateful that you're in this field? 
Yeah, gosh, there's so many. Um, I think in the specific context of egg freezing, um, egg freezing opens up so many doors for so many patients. So the only thing you need to freeze eggs is you need ovaries. That's mm -hmm. it. You don't need to have a heterosexual orientation. You don't need to even have a gender identity that's female. Mm -hmm. um, and in fact, uh, that brings me to a wonderful example, which is um, patients with uh, gender dysphoria who are undergoing gender transitions mm -hmm. can elect to freeze their eggs, for example. Oh my gosh. Before starting testosterone treatment. And it's a incredibly gratifying experience to allow that patient to preserve their future fertility. That's amazing. Yeah, it is. It's, it's unfortunately a, a rarer patient that we encounter because there are lots of barriers to care um, in that specific example. But it's wonderful. And then I would say the most common reason that we, we help patients freeze eggs is women just like you, Lahari, who you know, want the opportunity or the ability to delay childbearing to, you know, at, the, at a time in their lives when they feel it is more conducive to their career. Yeah. And I, I've noticed that no p one person's journey is the same with this. Um, you know, for example, for me, I was able to start right away um, because I was on the pill. My friend has to wait and kind of see when she's ovulating and it's taking a little longer. Mm -hmm. um, for some of us, it's pleasant. Some of us, it's super uncomfortable. So in general, if someone was listening to this and they wanted to get an idea of like, how does this work? What does an average process look like? Sure. So um, the average process of IVF, so it typically does roughly follow a menstrual cycle. And, uh, you know, before you would undertake egg freezing, you would meet with a doctor and we would, as I had mentioned, discuss your medical history, your medications. We would um, go over what does it mean to have frozen eggs and what can you do with those eggs? Mm -hmm. And the brief answer to that question is, Eggs can stay frozen for really as long as we think. There's no, as you can tell, right, since it was experimental only since the last eight years, there isn't mm -hmm. really long-term data. But in general, we think they can stay frozen. And whenever you want, we can thaw them and we can fertilize them with sperm and create embryos that we can transfer either to back to you as the patient or we could transfer those embryos to a gestational carrier who would carry that pregnancy on your behalf. Got it. And what kinds of reasons do people come in to freeze their eggs? If you could list the like top five or six that you see. Top five reasons for egg freezing. So one of them you mentioned delaying childbirth. Mm-hmm. Same-sex couples, transgender, care. So in terms of who, uh, who would consider freezing eggs, I think the way I would answer that is to say anybody who is thinking about freezing their eggs or mm -hmm. who wants to learn more about their fertility, please come find me or any number of my counterparts uh, that are scattered across the country to talk about it. Because if you're thinking about it, you should know that you have options and that we should talk further. That's amazing. So it sounds like you, one of the reasons you said is like delaying, same sex, transgender, and then literally anyone. Yes. Do we have, yeah. You just <laughs> need amazing. to have ovaries. <laughs> yeah. That's incredible. Um, and then I guess I should ask, like, who should not be looking into this? And I don't mean literally, but is there any reason why people shouldn't freeze eggs or you see people where you're like, oh, this is not really the best option, but you think it is? So I think the only patients in whom I pause are probably at the extremes of age. Mm -hmm. 
So for someone who's very young, um, you know, just maybe 18, it's just throwing out a number, I would, I would provide some pretty strong counseling about what is your rationale for freezing eggs because it's so hard to know when you're 18, you know, how life will turn out and what direction you'll go in. Mm-hmm. And then the other, the other extreme is, is a harder conversation and that's about, you know, how old is too old to freeze eggs? And I, you know, I hesitate yeah. to put a number on it, but in general, for all of us, fertility decreases with age. And that's because of this completely bizarre scenario that we all face as women, which is that we're actually born with all the eggs that we will ever have. Mm. And we start losing eggs every month, even when we are fetuses inside of our mothers. Wow. Yeah. Starting, I have no idea. Yeah, starting at 20 weeks of gestation, your ovaries start throwing away eggs every month. Damn. And so the whole system is rigged against you such that by the time you are, for example, 35, you have already tossed away a large portion of your eggs and also a lot of the good quality eggs. Mm. So for most women, uh, egg freezing outcomes are not favorable over the age of anywhere between 42 and 44. Got it. Yeah, this came up a lot where it was like, what, what is the age around? Like, how old is too old? When should people um, start thinking about it? And this is something that was corrected when I met with my fertility clinic was that I was like, hey, should I have been freezing since I was like 18? Or would I have had like the best, most pure adult eggs or, or whatever and they're like actually it's in your kind of like late 20s your early 30s what is the optimum age in your opinion gosh i can't really put a number on it i think um if you are thinking about it just come find one of us and we can talk about it it's it's really never too early or never too late to have a conversation with a doctor about it that's totally fair and also cost wise like going back to that conversation of access without insurance you know, ideally that does ha- that is something that helps. But without insurance, what is the average cost if you did one cycle of it? It's probably between ten and fifteen thousand dollars for one cycle. Mm, that's super helpful. Um, I have a couple other last questions to ask from the audience, so um, I won't have like a specific transition for them, but I do want to make sure that their questions are answered. So one of them was, I can only take pills with progesterone only. Can I still go through the process? Yeah, so I think, you know, this particular person would probably benefit from a one-on-one conversation with a fertility doctor. Mm -hmm. Um, Birth control pills, which classically contain both estrogen and progesterone, are not a prerequisite for freezing your eggs. Mm -hmm. However, in order to freeze your eggs, we do have to essentially have your ovaries produce lots of hormones. Um, So this probably would benefit from an individual conversation. That makes sense. And then what is a good egg count to store? And I understand this might vary. So let's say likely we could just pick on me. I'll just offer myself as a lamb. But I'm 30 years old. I got my eggs frozen and I want to have kids like 35. So what would a good count be? Mm-hmm. So I think that number varies a lot on what you plan on doing with your eggs and how old you were when you froze them and how many children you want to have. And those answers are so different for every person. Um, 
I think probably the other thing to take into account is that, and this is also a very common misunderstanding, is that one frozen egg does not equal one baby. And that's because this frozen egg has to do so many things before it turns into a baby. Mm -hmm. And I had mentioned some of them earlier, but I'll just go over them really quickly. So that egg has to thaw, has to survive the thaw, it has to fertilize with sperm, it has to grow in culture in the embryology laboratory for about a week, has to survive that, and then it has to have a normal complement of chromosomes, which are ge mm. the genetic DNA that make all of us. That embryo then has to be usually frozen and then transferred to you at a later time. So what ends up happening statistically is one frozen egg has between a 5 and 10% chance of turning into a baby. Oh, wow. So it is a lot of math here going it's on. It's a lot of math. And, you know, the, the big takeaway that I really try and leave my patients with is human reproduction is extremely inefficient. Mm. So at every step of the process, there are more failures than successes. Interesting. That's probably very hard for people who are very into controlling their input output. And then also in a society like ours, which is very like, I do something, I want this outcome. I completely agree with you. And I think a lot of women who have the ability to ask difficult questions about fertility and egg freezing are also women who, as you said, are used to being very proactive about their lives and their careers. And it's very hard when there's a mismatch. Um, Definitely. I think in that way, it's really helpful to hear more and more stories um, of people going through outcomes that might not be, quote, successful. Um, you know, even like examples of Chrissy Teigen being open about her miscarriage mm -hmm. or Beyonce, for example. These are very large names, of course. Mm -hmm. But even just hearing friends, it helps so much normalize. Like, it doesn't really go the way we think, um, which is something that's also really intimidating for Again, like people like us who are used to putting something in and being like, this has to happen, otherwise I'm a failure. I agree. And I think, you know, no matter what context you interface with the medical system, I think being a patient is really hard. I think being a fertility patient is exceptionally hard um, because fertility is just a very emotional and intimate part of your life. Yeah. I feel like patients tell me things that probably they've never told even their intimate partner. Um, and it's just so hard to wrap your head around sharing such an intimate life experience with somebody that you really don't know. Definitely, which is why I think like people like you who are really driven by that mission, um, I can't imagine <laughs> what good hands they're in. What is the most difficult or challenging experience you had with a patient around this? You know, in general, I feel so grateful that my patients um, entrust me uh, to guide them through this journey. Um, I've had many more happy stories than sad stories. Um, mm -hmm. so, many of our, so many of our patients um, get the empowerment that they sought uh, by freezing their eggs or embryos and uh, also the family that they envisioned. Um, mm -hmm. It's also hard, in this particular context of egg freezing, I think what's most difficult is that it's not a guarantee. So mm -hmm. the only way, and I, I really hate saying this, but it's true, the only way to guarantee that you're gonna have the family you wanna have is by actually making it happen 
on your own. Mm -hmm. And short of that, you know, there is just no guarantee that all these eggs that we are freezing will survive and fertilize and grow into embryos and turn into babies. Um, so I have had, you know, rare cases where patients have frozen eggs earlier in their lives and come back, you know, several years later and thaw them and, you know, don't have any eggs that survive. And, uh, wow. It's so hard. Um, I think some of that has to do with the actual technology that we use to freeze the eggs has changed, changed a lot over time. Mm -hmm. But some of it is just probably a misunderstanding of what those frozen eggs actually meant. That's totally fair. And hopefully that education is improving, it sounds like. I hope so. We, we try our best. But honestly, it is, you know, as you can see, like this is a very difficult thing to talk about. Yeah. Um, and it's really hard to really explain a lot of these actually like very complicated biological issues to a patient in addition to the ethical and emotional issues that go along with egg freezing. Yeah, it's it's so interesting uh, when you said that too. I thought of like how many people also like close friends or like family that because they also didn't know what this really was. And I was kind of being, again, like obnoxious about like, yeah, this is what I'm going through, like, you know, and offering it when they asked like how I was doing. They just kind of get awkward and like quiet. Um, and I, I figured that had less to do about like their care for me than they just didn't know how to have the conversation and they just felt uncomfortable. But I also thought that was really interesting that like there is this it's almost like talking about race with people who don't, you know, know how to or like don't feel comfortable that it can be isolating if you don't have the right support group. Absolutely agree. Yes. Actually, in our early um, earlier, we were talking about the connection, unfortunately, that can be made when you mix sexuality and reproduction in the same kind of world. Um, and I wanted to transition to one of the things that we did touch on that I really appreciated when we first talked. You were like, can we please talk about vaginismus? Unfortunately, this goes into a more... Um, it's not celebrating sexuality, but vaginismus is something that we are talking about more and more in our communities because so many South Asian women are impacted by this. But we just normalize this, keep it private, don't talk about it, it's something wrong with you kind of stigma, and we're not healing from it as a community. So I'd love to ask you a little bit about what is vaginismus, first of all, and why did you feel so passionately about talking about this with a South Asian female audience? Thanks, Lahari. So I'll start with just a medical definition, and then I will unpack it. So vaginismus is defined as a recurrent or persistent involuntary spasm of the muscles of the vagina that interfere with sex. In other words, put more simply, vaginismus is a sexual pain disorder. Mm. And I choose the word disorder very carefully because it means that it's not something that you choose to have. It's not something that you wish upon yourself or could make go away in a, with a particular frame of mind. And it's a condition that can be treated and can be improved with treatment. I had no idea it could be improved. Yeah, it can. That's amazing. So what? So a lot of this, when I read online, which is again not a medical doctorate or any, for any um, by any means, but I saw that it's linked to a lot of trauma. Um, and this is something where I'd love to have you kind of set the record straight. Is one of the things that I've noticed is also there is a lot of 
trauma, which people think is a strong word, but I think could be used more broadly or widely because there is a lot of trauma in our communities that sometimes don't get talked about. That's actually one of the reasons why I started this is I was having a conversation with a friend and we were talking about some of the generational trauma that's been passed down with the women in our family by no fault of their own. But we were like, wow, like if we're carrying all of that and still trying to pretend everything's fine and live these like normal American lives that we see on TV, like there's no way you're set up for success if you don't unpack that. Um, so is that why we see more of vaginismus appear in our community? Like why is it so prevalent in our Indian American community? You know, I've thought a lot about this, and I I don't have very clear answers. I do want to comment that, yes, there are multiple types of trauma that can lead to the development of vaginismus. Um, Sexual trauma, emotional trauma, physical trauma. Um, There are so many inciting events. I don't know, honestly, Lahari, why it is more common in among Indian women um, but I do feel that it is very under-recognized and under-discussed. Mm-hmm. Do you think it's also like, you know, and, and this isn't just Indian communities, but there are other cultures where it wasn't as much of a priority for the woman to feel pleasure. It's a lot of that's secondary or it's OK, we don't have to worry about it, unfortunately. So is that part of the factor of why you think it's been ignored? I think so, and I'm glad you brought that up. Um, I do think uh, in our culture there is a hesitancy among women to claim their sexual identity and their sexual desire. Mm. So it's not just brown communities that I know have also placed that emphasis on male pleasure over female pleasure. I also like, you know, when you do your research, like a lot of or even just like thinking back, like we all read The Crucible growing up and like this kind of like women being sexual, like turned into these characters of witches in British um, culture as well. Like historically, women who kind of expressed that desire were seen as hysteric. So women have been often belittled in a way where they're like, be calm, be quiet about it, um, even if it's just subconscious or silently, which I know, again, like can come into play in situations like this. So we're like, I, I guess what I, I'm kind of stuck with is like, do you have to experience trauma to go through this? Why do some people go through trauma and they don't develop vaginismus, whereas others do and then they they still, you know, and they, yeah, others do. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I would say that I think trauma and vaginismus are not mutually exclusive or not intimately always connected. Mm -hmm. Um, You can certainly have one without the other, or you can have both. Um, I think just like sexual desire and sexual pleasure in women, which we know is a very complicated phenomenon, vaginismus is also very complex, and there's you know, physical, psychosocial, and situational components. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I realized too, like some of the, um, so there's this one movie, let me backtrack, um, Unorthodox on Netflix. Have you watched that? No, I haven't actually. It's very good. It's about the uh, Orthodox community in New York and how this woman escapes and she is trying to build a new future for herself, but she finds herself pulled. Um, and one of the things that they talk about I, I won't try to, like, I, I'll try not to give it away too much, but her and her husband experience these kid difficulties 
consummating their relationship because she has vaginismus but she doesn't know what that is she doesn't no one is telling her what that is and when she talks about it it's she's often shamed and her mother-in-law becomes really involved in their relationship and um it's really sad to see. Obviously, this woman clearly needs the help around this, but no one is able to give her the right direction. And she's just further frustrated and alone. Later in the movie, she, you know, hooks up with another partner and she enjoys it. Whereas with her husband, it was very painful. And I was wondering, like, how does it vary partner to partner? Um, not because I was like incredulous about it, but more just like, oh, that's so interesting. With him, she was really comfortable. How does that vary? Yeah, it, it varies because vaginismus is really complex. So women experience vaginismus differently in different situations. Mm -hmm. So for the majority of women, this means that vaginal penetration, either by a penis or a finger or a sex toy, is uncomfortable. Mm. And you know, you can imagine the most common situation this arises is sexual intercourse. But of course, there's lots of other situations in, this, in which this can arise. Yeah, that makes sense. What are some common misunderstandings about this? Oh, gosh, there are just so many. Um, there is so much self-blame that happens mm. around vaginismus. And um, I see so often that it perpetuates a cycle of decreased sexual desire mm -hmm. and then, you know, develops into aversion behaviors. In usually in both um, both partners in an intimate relationship. Yeah, I also like will say this is kind of um, maybe this is a little out there. So let me know, like Lahari, like I don't know, but because the pandemic, no doubt, has been a traumatic experience for many people, and almost universally, we all have experienced some level of like, what the fuck happened to my life? You know, since twenty twenty started. Um, and one of the conversations that I've been having with several women is that our ability to feel that drive to feel, and this is not necessarily maybe vaginismus, but um, there's this kind of like, you can't even imagine yourself as a sexual being. Is that something that is possible for women um, in times of extreme prolonged chronic stress? Of course, of course. I think in any situation of stress, um our own well-being and our prioritization of that well-being goes to the bottom of the list. Mm -hmm. And I think sexual satisfaction is probably a component of that well-being that's very easy to ignore when other stressors uh, show up. Absolutely. I think that's kind of the unfortunate part is that there's so much potential almost I see with like understanding and mastering your own personal sexual your relationship with your sexuality. But it's almost the least amount of time that I spend on it or we spend on it as a community. And it takes a lot of proactive work from the individual to go out and seek it. Um and it's just such a complex thing that it's almost like I don't want to touch it, right? So like I realized even like at the age of 30 now, I'm talking to my therapist about a lot of sexual trauma that I've had growing up that I didn't realize even um, actually when you and I talked, I was like, oh, like I think I had like I suffered from this for a long time and I never really talked about it. Like my doctor just said, like, you probably have vaginismus, but like whatever, like let's practice on a dildo or something like that. Mm -hmm. So um, I think that's something that I realized, like I just 
figured I don't have time for it. Sex is a fun thing. It's just, it's not a must have. It's a nice to have. So let me just like get to it at another point in life. And at the age of 30, if I'm talking about things, you know, that have happened to me so young, um, it's just unfortunate that we don't spend more time. I felt like I can't be alone in this. You're certainly not alone. And every single woman I have seen, I have said that same, shared that same message with. Um, Vaginismus is so incredibly common. And in fact, you know, Lahari, I was researching for this podcast and, you know, there are studies that, you know, up to two thirds of Indian women suffer from vaginismus. I mean, that's just tremendous. Yeah, that means like almost two out of the three friends we have that are, you know, Indian American might have suffered through this. Absolutely. And I think it's worth mentioning, too, then. And I'll just speak to, you know, forgive me for being so narrow, but in, in my scope, but I'll just speak to heterosexual couples that I have seen, you know, women who have vaginismus, it often does evolve into sexual dysfunction in the male partner as well. I mean, you can imagine if, you know, sex is always a painful and scary experience that that would have repercussions on the other partner as well. That is such a good point. And I don't think I have really thought about that. And can you tell us more about what that would look like in the other partner? Yeah. So um, there is an increased prevalence of male sexual dysfunction um, in the context of a partner with vaginismus. And, and, you know, men can have difficulty either achieving or sustaining erections during intercourse. Mm-hmm. Um and, you know, regardless of vaginismus, and you can you can imagine that vaginismus would just exacerbate that situation. Yeah, and I mean that makes a lot of sense. Like if it's impacting that per individual, like there's impact on the microsystem, like around the ecosystem around that person. Um, and so exactly, yeah, it's a very difficult journey. Um, I can imagine, and, and this is something that you know, to your point about like how many women could have it. Um, but maybe we don't know. I understand no one's going to shake their hand like, hi, my name's, you know, Martha and I have vaginismus. But how do we support friends who are going through this? Um, you know, if my friend tells me, hey, I have this, like, what should my response be in addition to empathy and, you know, um, support? First response should be to normalize it, mm-hmm. to just comment on how incredibly common it is, how nobody talks about it and how it really can have effects that are very Mm -hmm. far-reaching beyond just, you know, a one intimate encounter. The next thing I would say is to encourage your friend or educate your friend that there are absolutely treatment options. Mm -hmm. And there are physicians, actually, who specialize in sexual dysfunction. uh, And among those uh, dysfunctions, specialize in the treatment of vaginismus. And I was really fortunate when I was uh, training at Stanford to work with one of those physicians. Um, I'm going to give her a shout out. Her name is Dr. Leah Milheiser, Mm -hmm. and she is absolutely brilliant and has really, you know, revolutionized the field of female sexual medicine. That is incredible. I'm going to look her up ASAP. (laughs) Um, You would love her, as do I. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, to be in this work, too, I just really admire and, you know, like the impact you can have is so tremendous. So. Um, and let's say, you know, someone is listening to this and they're like, shit, I think I might have had this or I, I have this. How would you respond to them? I would say, please don't hesitate to ask for help. Um, you can start by reaching out to your obstetrician or gynecologist if you have one, mm-hmm. or you can directly seek out a 
uh, a gynecologist who specializes in sexual dysfunction. Most physicians, you know, I, I give you the ability to self-refer, so just make yourself an appointment. Um, at that appointment, you can expect the physician to ask you more questions about what you've been feeling and, you know, your medical and, and uh, your medical history, your social history, any prior traumas. Mm -hmm. So it can be, you know, a very involved visit. So do mentally prepare yourself for that. That's totally fair. Is it possible to heal from this? Yes, it is. And um, I have been so fortunate to be part of some of these women's journeys who have healed from vaginismus. I will say it's not a fast fix. Mm -hmm. Sadly, like many things, it does take time. Mm -hmm. And treatment for vaginismus is, you know, I think it's very successful when you approach it uh, as a two-pronged approach. So the first is more of a, like a physical treatment, um, and it's called vaginal dilator therapy. Mm. And there's these dilators you can buy online that start from very, very small to like even smaller than your pinky finger. And they go from in, in width, they go from very skinny to the size of a normal male penis. And essentially dilator therapy is inserting those dilators, starting with the absolute smallest size that you feel comfortable with, and leaving them in place for about 30 minutes a day in a private setting, in your own terms, in a situation where you are entirely in control of what is happening to your body and your vagina. Mm. And I think a very important component of dilator therapy is also teaching about female anatomy. Mm. And, you know, Leah, I, I'll just say I was very fortunate to be trained by Leah Milheiser, and at her visit, she brings a mirror and she shows women, often for the very first time, what, what are labia and what, what is a clitoris and what does it look like? Um, and I think these are very very important tools for empowerment and education that all of us should have. I feel so energized just hearing you say that because I think that's such a great point. Like we talk about like emotionally, psychologically, how can we be there for others if we're not there for ourselves? But again, I think like for some reason, like I don't ever factor like bloop, it like falls off. Sexuality is never something that I put in that table. And I think that's so important if you don't feel like in touch with your own body, genitalia, sexuality, then how can you even think about like the partner um, and experiencing it with someone else? Absolutely. And I think it also goes both ways. I also think that as a society in general, we could all use more education about um, female sexuality and anatomy because it's not out there. It's not very easy to understand. Mm -hmm. um, and I, I will just say I'm, I'm very proud of the fact that my um, five-year-old knows uh, the difference between labia and a vagina yes thank you i was even <laughs> go is this um your daughter it's he's actually he's my son <laughs> oh my gosh that's even better girl you're my goals like i would love to be able to i feel like if i have a boy better be a fucking feminist girl still there right but i think that's so important because I think, again, like people think like, oh, we can't talk about that. They're too young. But you don't have to tell them. And this is how you like have sex. But like at the age of five, it should be important that people know body parts. Yeah, we just completely normalize it. And I, I really think he thinks that a vagina is just like a nose. 
<laughs> which yeah. I love. It really, yeah. that's the way it should be. Absolutely. Oh my gosh, your your son's very lucky, in my opinion, <laughs> to have such a woke mom. He's so. Oh, I love that word. Um, he's really cute. And the other day, actually, he we were driving in the car, and he said, "Mom, did you know that men can be doctors too?" <laughs> It was amazing. Yeah. I felt like my parenting role had just, I'd, I'd done it. Yeah, That's you're all like, I had to do. I peaked. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Absolutely. And I, you know, that lens you bring, though, I, I love that, like, you have your own children that you're thinking about, like, how do they grow up and, like, form their own relationship with this? So you're not only doing this for people you don't know that you meet as your patients, but even just within your own family um, dynamic, too. So does that continue to be a source of inspiration for you? Yes, always, always. I want this world to be a better place for our children. I want my sons to understand what consent is. I want them to understand... um, you know, what healthy relationships are built on and most importantly, to just be able to communicate. Absolutely. And yeah, I think like if more people did that, honestly, like it'd just be so like, especially, you know, as women think about like, knowing like, hey, this is not something people can touch or like be able to, you know, no one should talk to me in this way about my body. Like if you don't know from a young age and you suddenly learn when it's too late, like the damage has been done. So um, I so appreciate your perspective. So in addition to medical treatment, is there anything else that we should be doing to help in the journey to combat vaginismus? Yes, thank you for asking, Lahari. And I, this allows me to bring up the really important piece that there is a very significant psychosocial and psychiatric component to vaginismus. And um, this is also where the trauma therapy comes in. Mm-hmm. And women have benefited tremendously from cognitive behavioral therapy. Uh, in conjunction with vaginal dilator therapy to really um, to heal. Yeah, I that's so great to hear. And it actually made me wonder, can you click a little bit into like, what is trauma, right? So is trauma, get, you know, being assaulted? Is trauma seeing certain things in the household? Like what, it does, can you define trauma for us a little bit? Gosh, trauma is all of those things. Trauma is our response to a distressing or disturbing event that threatens our ability to cope with it. Mm. And what that trigger is, is, you know, it would be impossible to describe the breadth of that. Um, I would say that I think overall trauma is tremendously minimized as our triggers. And, Mm. you know, feelings are facts. And if you're feeling it, then it's real. Absolutely. No, that's so helpful. Thank you. So last but not least, we always end with a chip chip round, which is our kind of fun, quick questions. I'm going to ask you about five. Are you ready? I'm ready. Who is your celebrity crush? Okay, I asked my husband this and he said, well, of course it should be me. Obviously. Okay, so he's my celebrity, but I also have a crush on George Clooney. Mmm, daddy. Um, so he, <laughs> is that because of ER or just in general? Oh, no, just in general, Lake Como, you know. Of course. Yeah. <laughs> so if you weren't a doctor, what would you want to be? I would want to be a mom with a full-time nanny. Oh, amazing. What would you do, you think? What, like a day, what would that look like for you? There would be lots of running and yoga and wine. Oh, amazing. Actually, speaking of, it's a Friday night. <laughs> Red wine or margarita? Red all the way. 
Ooh, any favorite wineries locally? Yeah, Ridge, actually. It's in the Cupertino Hills. Oh, what's it called? It's called Ridge, R-I-D-G-E. Okay, gotta check it out. I didn't know it was local. Amazing. I thought you would say Napa or Sonoma, but... Oh, no. I mean, of course. I'd love to go there, but Ridge is, like, so accessible. Of course. Yeah, you can pop over after work (laughs) from the Stanford (laughs) campus. Yeah. (laughs) What is the most life-changing book you've read and would recommend? This is a sad one, but it was really moving. It was called When Breath Becomes Air by Paul Kalanithi. Mm-hmm. He is a uh, neurosurgeon at Stanford who passed away at an incredibly sad young age of uh, lung cancer mm. and left behind a baby girl and a wife who's uh, on the faculty at Stanford and just is an incredibly brilliant and talented writer. Oh, I'm so sorry, but um, that's an, it sounds incredible. Um, COVID is over. What is the first vacation destination you'd book? Tuscany. Oh, okay. Is the wine one of the reasons or, okay. The (laughs) wine, the cheese, the sunshine, and probably wander over to find George Clooney. I don't know. Of course. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) This is all linked. (laughs) It's like in love actually when you realize everything is related. (laughs) That just came full circle there. Yes. Um, Dr. Murugappan, thank you so much for your time and all your wisdom. I feel so enlightened by this and hopefully others do too. So I can't thank you enough. Thank you so much for having me. Of course.